May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Do please sit down. It's not part of the sermon, but I thought you'd like it. This little box, as some of you know, is we, we record the sermons here. They're available um, online. Um, so uh, if you want to check quite how much of a heretic I am, you know how to do it. Um, but after 10 o'clock mass last Sunday, we had a group of Japanese tourists uh, came into the chapel here. And, uh, and I picked this up. Fortunately, they had a, a, an American translator with them. I picked this up, turned around, I said, would you like me to change the channel? <laughs> <laughs> these, pl these plasma screens are remarkable, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, that's enough nonsense. Um, right, um, uh, a favourite English pastime, it might be an American one too, is name dropping. Uh, I don't know, you might, you might enjoy name dropping. It's, you know, it's, I, I, there's, a, there's a photograph in, in the sacristy here of uh, when President Jimmy Carter came to this chapel. Um, uh, looks like from the security personnel that he was actually president at the time. And some of you might remember it. No, no, no. <laughs> how long ago it was, then, doesn't it? <laughs> but um, and President, yeah, you can imagine if you were here on the day, you, you would talk about the, the day you met President Carter. You would if you met any US president, whether you like them or not, you know, you remember it. I've got a lovely photograph of my, at home of my uh, late mother and father-in-law meeting Queen Elizabeth. You know, they never forgot that. You don't, do you? Um, but name-dropping comes in all sorts of forms, and I'm going to do a couple of bits now. <laughs> now, fortunately, most of the people that I could name-drop, you will never have heard of. But I'm pretty certain that if you're anything above about, ooh, I don't know, 10, 12 years old, which some of you are, um, that you might have heard uh, of, of these two name drops. Um, many years ago, 20 odd years ago, I used to do a bit of um, amateur theatricals. Uh, a lot of the clergy are frustrated actors. <laughs> As you can probably tell. <laughs> That's how you are. And uh, we do, of course, get the costumes, which are very nice. Um, but you'll be glad to hear that I'm not wearing any makeup uh, this morning. That's one of the great blessings. Of it. I can't speak for my female clergy um, colleagues. They may well wear makeup. Um, anyway, uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so the, 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 the thing was, 20 years ago, I was in a production, an amateur production of uh, My, My Fair Lady. Uh, you know, little musical oh, yeah. show, some of you might have seen it on Broadway or, or elsewhere, and I played um, Henry Higgins. Um, now, the, the main difference was that I sang the notes. You know, why can't the English teach their children how to speak? That kind of thing. And, um, and so I played Henry Higgins in My Fair Lady, and the guy who played Colonel Pickering, um, he's, he's since died, he's a lovely guy called Dickie Briggs, who was a milkman in a village in, uh, in North Oxfordshire. And uh, Dickie's nephew married Dame Julie Andrews' niece. So Dame Julie very kindly sent us a, a photograph of herself with best wishes for the production, Julie, on it, which hung in the changing rooms in, 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 uh, where we were doing the show, uh, which was, which was like, that's a really nice claim to fame. And her stepmother, I think it was, who was a very elderly lady by this point, um, lived nearby, and because she had met Dickie, who was playing Colonel, she came to see the show. And Julie Andrews' stepmom had only ever seen two men play Henry Higgins, and the other one was Rex Harrison. <laughs> 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 
Now, the other thing was that the guy who did the costume was a chap called Andrew Jenner. And Andrew had been the costumier at the Royal Opera House, Covent Garden. He was Placido Domingo's dresser whenever um, Placido sang there, you see. Um, but it was quite a high-pressure job. And in the end, he, he started his own costume business, providing all the um, sort of amateur theatrical groups and semi-professional theatrical all over England. And he had a wonderful collection of film, uh, sorry, movie... I should have subtitles. Um, of movie and, uh, and theatre costumes. He had a very nice dress that Lana Turner had worn in something in the 40s. I, I think Andrew only wore it at weekends, but it was a very, very nice dress. <laughs> You'd have to meet him to know why that was funny. Um, but uh, I, I, and, and one, of his, one of his collection was the actual hat that Rex Harrison wore in the movie and on Broadway. Uh, so um, he very kindly let me use it when I played Henry Higgins. So I wore Rex Harrison's hat. <laughs> it was fantastic. Now the thing was, Rex had a very small head. <laughs> and I have a very, very big head indeed. So most of the time I had to carry it. Because on the rare occasion I put it on my head, it was like a dinky thing. <laughs> like, like Mr Magoo. Yeah, dinky thing. Like that. So, so anyway. So why am I telling you all this? I'm, I'm, yeah. I can't remember. Anyway. <laughs> the, the point was, that there was a guy, a younger, um, younger, younger me, is still a friend, uh, called Simon, who played um, Freddie Ainsford Hill uh, in, in the show. And he gets the best song. I mean, I got all those long, you know, why can't the English, you know, yeah, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but but uh, dear old Simon got the best song. Uh, that's because he was young, slim and handsome. Uh, which is what happens with young, slim, handsome guys. They get all the best songs. Sickening, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, so this was uh, his song, and I'll try, and, I'll try and do the thing where I get the tune and the words right at the same time. All right? This, yeah. As some of you know, that don't always, doesn't always happen. Okay? So, um, <clears throat> and then I'll t the other thing is that you need to know that I'll tell you why I'm singing you this song afterwards, because it does have something to do with the scripture readings. <laughs> All right, if you're, just, if you're just thinking, hello, what's going on? Uh, if you've not been here before, uh, I'll tell you why. <laughs> as long as I can remember. Anyway. I have often walked down this street before, but the pavement always stayed beneath my feet before. All at once am I several stories high, knowing I'm on the street where you live. Are there lilac trees in the heart of town? Can you hear a lark in any other part of town? Does enchantment pour out of every door? No, it's just on the street where you live. And all a towering feeling Just to know somehow you are near The overpowering feeling That any second you may suddenly appear People stop and stare, they don't bother me For there is nowhere else on earth that I would rather be Let the time go by, I would care if I Can be here on the street where you live Well... Bravo. Bravo. Bravo.
I never understood how Simon got the part. Anyway. <laughs> now he went, he went on to star in the West End, Simon did. He acted with um, David Soul in some productions in the West End. Do you remember David Soul? Starsky and Hutch? Oh, yes. yeah. Yeah. yeah, he was the good looking one. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that was it. But so why was it? Well, this might not be you, but I guess it's a lot of us that um, uh, we have a sense of, when, perhaps when we're young, perhaps you still like it. I've been married nearly 25 years, and it's lovely, but relationships change over time. But that first flush of romantic love. And when I was 18, I, I, I was working in, a, uh, in my university holiday in a, in a chicken processing plant, as you do. And, uh, and there was this other girl working in the processing plant. She went to Cambridge um, University, and, um, and I thought she was lovely. I can't remember her name now. Her father was a Baptist minister. So anyway, uh, anyway, <laughs> anyway, she was lovely. Uh, even even in the sort of the cotton hat and the hair net and the, all the stuff you have to wear in the chicken processing factory. And um, and and I can remember the thing. I happened to be um, going to play cricket in the village where she lived was where I was playing cricket. And I remember walking through this village to the cricket ground and thinking, Oh, I'm in her village. It's <laughs> 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 just me. No, it's just me. I, I, I'm hopeless old romantic. Anyway, so, um, so, th that, so I get a real sense of that, um, you know, that sense of, of, you know, the first flush of love, young love, um, in that wonderful um, song um, from the musical. And uh, that sense of the excitement of being close to someone uh, that you really, as what the English would say, we really fancy, um, uh, is quite a powerful thing. And where they are becomes a special place. Um, for us and in all sorts of ways um, that's repeated in lots of our human experiences why do people visit Buckingham Palace when they're in London well because it's where the Queen is you know why do people drive past the White House because you can't get within about 400 yards can you really um, it's because where the President lives it's important you know there's a sense of connection with that why do people go on tours in Hollywood see the stars houses I mean, you wouldn't want it for decor tips, would you? I mean, that's all I've seen, it's fairly ghastly. But, um, but, you know, there's a sense of closeness to people. When I wore Rex Harrison's hat, it really made me feel good wearing Rex Harrison's hat singing that part. It's very important. And it happens to us spiritually, too, when the object of our love is especially close to us in a particular um, place. I was ordained in um, Norwich Cathedral in uh, the county of Norfolk in the east of England. It's quite a new cathedral. It was built in 1096. So um, it's, a, it's a rather, rather fabulous place. And uh, at the end of it, so you imagine it's about 300 feet long, made of stone, imported, uh, sailed up from Caen in Normandy, the stone was. And um, the bishop's throne is high up on steps above the high altar. And uh, so there's a bishop's throne. And he looks right down his cathedral church, and it's, it's a fabulous place. If you ever get a chance to go there, um, it's, it's a glory. Um, beneath the bishop's bottom, there's a hole in the stonework. Um, not for the reason you're thinking he's not going to tell us that, surely. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, the, hole in the, bishop's, uh, the hole in the bishop's bottom, the hole, in the, the hole under the bishop's bottom, under his throne, was where before the Reformation holy relics were kept. Um, um, and they were probably in Norwich, they were probably the, the, the uh, bones of um, St. King Edmund of East Anglia, who I'll tell you more about in a minute, um, or St. Felix, possibly. But anyway, there were some, some holy relics, and because 
through the holiness of the person whose bones or whatever it was um, were there, people felt a special closeness to Jesus in that place, and it also imbued the bishop in those days with a, a great deal of authority. Um, English bishops still sit in the House of Lords and still have a, an automatic role in government. So um, in our culture, it's a slightly different set of <laughs> circumstances to yours. But the, you know, the bishop had spiritual authority, um, and he sat on relics. But if you still go to an ancient place like Norwich, it feels that there's a special sort of resonance almost in the stones about the presence of God there. And where I came to faith, I came to faith because of a building. And that building was the Church of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary in a town called Attleboro. You have an Attleboro in the US, it's in Massachusetts, it's a great big place. Um, Attleboro, Norfolk, has a, is about the size of Jackson. Um, so it's not very big, and it doesn't have as many tourists. Um, it has to be said. Um, a famous architectural historian called Sir Nicholas Pevsner described it as um, uh, a, one of English, England's finest small-town churches in what is, frankly, not one of English, England's finest small towns. That's, uh, that's my hometown. But it's a mighty medieval um, building. And St. King Edmund, who was martyred at the end of the 9th century by the Vikings for refusing to renounce his faith, um, he studied, for, studied the Gospels for a year um, in that place um, before he became king. And he was England's original um, patron saint, um, was Edmund of East Anglia. He was a German, um, but like most of our monarchs, that is the case. Uh, so uh, he was uh, he was sent King Edmund of East Anglia. And, uh, and I still feel this sort of sense of incredible holiness over centuries uh, when I sit in that place where I came uh, to faith, almost as if the very stones reverberate with the presence of God. And for us here... Um, I feel that this is a place like that. Uh, this is a new place. 1925, this was built. But that's a lot older. <laughs> and there's a sense in these mountains and in this place uh, of, for me, of the, of the very real presence of God here. In the Celtic Christian tradition, uh, it's called a thin place. Um, you can see I'm not very good in thin places. I have to breathe in a heck of a lot to get into them. But it's not thin in that sense. It's thin in the sense that the boundary between heaven and earth is permeable. You know, some places and some points in our lives we feel very far from the presence of God. But some places we go, and we go back to time and time again, where God almost sort of is just there to touch. And with these mountains in this place for me, like it is in Attleborough in Norfolk or in the great cathedral at Norwich. It's, it's one of those places. Solomon, in the first book of Kings, was talking in his new temple in Jerusalem. Uh, and for the people then and there, that was very really the place where they touched the place of God, where God dwelled in the Holy of Holies. Uh, I have this vision of God sitting on the sitting on the Ark of the Covenant like this. Hello! <laughs> um, and the Ark of the Covenant, which uh, don't... It's not like in Indiana Jones, okay? It, well, it probably looked a bit like that, but, you know... But it had the, um, the tablets of uh, the Ten Commandments, Moses brought down from outside in it, and in the heart of this temple, uh, where God was present with his people. Uh, you can imagine how thin a place that must have been for them. <coughs> you know, quite, quite an incredible sense of the presence of God. And that still in Jerusalem has a, a knock-on for us, doesn't it? Because things that are that important are often contentious and difficult. 
contentious and difficult things are both a great blessing and a bit of a curse. And Jerusalem is still not a place of peace, probably because of that, at heart, probably because of that. And so there seem to be in the world places where we can meet God, places important to us. And you may well all have your own. Um, and if you haven't got one, feel free to try out some of mine. It's quite a long flight, but do, do, do feel free um, to try out some of mine. But we also know um, that God dwells in people. You know, the Spirit of God, through his grace, indwells uh, in us. And, of course, most especially so in the person of Jesus. Now, I don't know, I mean, I, think, I don't know if there are many of the clergy take August off. Um, but preaching in August on this bit of the lectionary, every gospel's the same all month. What new things can I find to say? Have you noticed? Yeah. I am the bread of life. <coughs> it, it, it was always it was Jesus repeats it. You know, it's John's gospel. John's gospel is quite repetitive anyway, and and I get this little bread of life. But today, I think it's really it's always really important. But today, it's particularly um, focuses back on on this holy place, this thin place, this being this place where people come to meet God. Because when Jesus dwells in you, as he was talking about with his disciples, and it was too difficult for some of them to handle, they become in themselves the thin place where others can encounter the living God. And they become that by being close to Jesus. And you can't get much more close to Jesus than receiving his very nature in bread and wine at the altar. And through the grace of God, we are transformed in ourselves as weak and feeble human beings to be thin places. Uh, you and I are the temple in Jerusalem wherein dwells the Spirit of God. You and I are Norwich Cathedral wherein dwells the specialness of a saint. And my prayer for you and for me is that through that process of imbibing grace, uh, we, to others, when we go out from this place, will be a sign and a touching place for the love of God. Because not everybody finds a holy place. Not everybody can make a pilgrimage to Rome or Canterbury or Moose. I like to call this the Moose Mass. <laughs> um, it's like Christmas, but warmer. Um, and so, uh, so not everybody can do that but they do meet you in your family, in your workplace in the Rotary Club, on the golf course whatever it is you do they do meet you and you can be the Holy of Holies a mobile Jerusalem now that's not easy when St Paul wrote to the Ephesians Ephesus was a, a great, great city and a great centre of um, often not terribly nice pagan worship and so the people who were witnessing to the living Lord in Ephesus were people who were doing it in hostile circumstances to say the least it would be rather like you and I getting on a plane to Tehran you know in many ways I'm, I'm, you know honest good Islam is a, is a good thing um, but some of it like some aspects of the Christian faith are things that <laughs> make life very difficult and cruel and horrible. Um, and we know about Palm Palmyra and all those places with IS in the news at the moment. You can imagine 
going there to be the presence of God in that place is a bit like the experience of the Ephesian Christians whom Paul was encouraging. So it's no surprise that he says you need to be armoured inside and outside to do this. That whole takes on a whole new meaning when they, he's praying for their protection and their strength in faith to face the difficulties. And for most of us, it's not like that. But we might be shy about our faith. We might not want to share it with friends and family and work colleagues. If only because we might be ridiculed. You know, people expect it of me. I wander around in a black shirt and a white collar. You know, people know what they're getting. But for those of us who, are, who don't have that particular, um, that particular ministry, um, it can sometimes be frightening. Uh, so perhaps another prayer for us is that in as much as we can be founts of the gospel and founts of the love of Christ for people, that he also gives us the protection and the, the confidence in ourselves and in him particularly uh, to be able to do that. So when you're on the street where you live, I hope and pray that as we go from this place, people may find in you that sort of joy of young love as they come to meet the living Lord in you, the living temple of God. And I'll continue that as my prayer for all of you uh, for the several years until we meet again. Thank mm -hmm. you.